as most of you <coughs> do know, in the, in the spiritual life, there is such a variety of different approaches to meditation and different interpretations of what it means to live a spiritual life or live in the Dharma. One of those approaches might say that really what meditation is all about is purification. Another approach might say, well, no, 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 meditation is about devotion. And yet someone else will say it's about concentration. The kind of different emphasis are many. Now, among the whole range of different approaches and different emphasis, there are particularly, I think, two that rather stand out and that very much, at least superficially, seem to contradict each other. One of those approaches is an approach which is really very commonly encountered in Buddhist and in Hindu teaching, which stresses that the whole point, and the only point actually, of a spiritual life is to, uh, to awaken, to seek for enlightenment, and that everything else is actually really somewhat irrelevant or are very, very secondary. This approach is encountered many times in many places to set one's sights in the spiritual path in a very clear and very directed way, interested only in awakening to what is true. The other approach, which is common, less common in the East, and more common in the West, says that <coughs> basically enlightenment is a pretty good idea, but most important or more important is that we learn to live as a psychologically, emotionally, socially, spiritually well-balanced person who has a compassionate and caring relationship towards the world, and the emphasis is more on personal development. Now, I think sometimes there is confusion around these two approaches. I think it's also a confusion we at times encounter within our own experience. Certainly the presentation of the spiritual path, which focuses pretty exclusively and wholeheartedly upon liberation, is a path which essentially does say to us that we, re we should really allow nothing, nothing at all, to distract us from this goal. It's a kind of encouragement to go for it. And certainly over thousands of years, 
according to all the stories which abound in the spiritual life, which I have no reason to disbelieve. Countless people have actually understood what it means to be enlightened. Countless people have actually understood what it means to awaken, to know the end of suffering, and come to know a limitless peace and happiness. That countless people have come to know what it means to retire from a cycle of endless becoming and sorrow. Now, every spiritual tradition has a story we encounter them over and over again of the great teachers, the great mystics, the great leaders who speak of this quality of awakening. I think for many of us we are actually very inspired by this story, by their example. Certainly it makes an impact upon us. This is the impact, I think, of the Dharma, that there is a possibility to the end of suffering, that there is a possibility of awakening to a truth and a reality which lies in and through all things, which offers great depths of peace and of happiness. It is a difficult invitation to turn away from it is a difficult example, a story. They are difficult to mistrust. The possibility of profound wisdom, the possibility of deep understanding, the possibility of great depths of happiness and joy and compassion. It is a hard invitation to turn down. It impacts upon us and inspires us to seek to understand what it means for ourselves. Now in this presentation of the spiritual life which so much emphasizes enlighten, enlightenment, I think it seems very important on such a path where it is perceived as being very important to put aside our more secondary concerns or concerns that at least seem to be very secondary in the light of possible awakening. Sometimes then in this version of this presentation, we are encouraged not to be distracted by concerns about our personality. You know, any personality doesn't seem that important uh, in the light of possible awakening. We're encouraged not to be concerned about, you know, our emotional hang-ups, about whether we have a, this kind of mind or another kind of mind that this is understanding this is not actually the point. This is how this path is often presented. We're encouraged not to be worried about kind of being well-adjusted or about personal growth, not to be distracted by drama, by content, but to be very single-pointed in terms of letting go, in terms of renunciation, in terms of being very persevering and steadfast in our vision and our motivation for this path. Everything else, you know, in terms of the past, in terms of the future, in terms of the causes for our conditioning, our attachments, we're much more encouraged to put on hold, 
Like this is not really on the menu of enlightenment. This is something different. I think in this presentation also there is also an unspoken assumption that liberation is going to take care of everything. You know, that first you become enlightened, or first you are liberated, you are awakened, and this is actually going to take care of all your problems by itself. <clears throat> and you don't actually have to do anything else. Your, your physical, your psychological life, your emotional life, your social life, you know, your concerns and your worries, that all of this is actually going to be taken care of by liberation. So what is emphasized in this path is a kind of unflinching, unflinching non-attachment, unflinching renunciation, unflinching single-pointedness. As one teacher once told me, when I asked what meditation was, said, you sit down and you let go. That was the beginning and the end of instruction. It's very simple, isn't it? It makes it very simple. Well, you know, it doesn't talk about understanding anything, you know, or getting to grips with anything, or getting to the bottom of anything. It makes it just so simple. Now, I think, you know, there is a certain fascination and attractiveness with the simplicity of such an approach. I mean, it is so uncomplicated. You know, there's nothing about stages. There's nothing about progression. There's nothing about improvement. There's nothing about measurement. There's nothing about working anything out. It is so simple. You just sit down and you let go. And then and there is something within us that feels a little bit fascinated by the kind of <coughs> not the simplicity and also the, the kind of purity I might say, of such an approach. I mean, it is obviously so little to do with the personal self, with me, with gains or achievements, that there is something about it which is extraordinarily inspiring. I think, too, in our own experience of meditation, there are moments, I think probably for most of us, when we have connected, actually, with with some very profound glimpses of peace, of, of stillness, of openness, of silence. And if you haven't, you will. Don't worry. <laughs> and in those moments, you know, no matter how brief they are, you know, even if it's only a single moment of totally, totally being still, there is something so profound and complete within those moments. And we know that it's got actually nothing to do with time. We know that it has nothing to do with necessarily having got rid of something or got over something or having gotten better at something. Actually, they're often really totally unexpected. You know, you have just a moment when everything seems to drop away and you know you wondered what all the fuss was you were making. About meditating, is there a course for meditation? Mm -hmm. And we know actually that those moments are often a kind of opening that has to do 
with letting go rather than waking, working things out. And also those moments, even if they're very brief, they kind of whet our appetite. You know, they, they create, I think, a kind of another kind of hunger. There's no doubt that the moment the mind follows those moments quite quickly and says, more. You know, I would like a little more of that. I would like a little more stillness. I would like a little more silence and a little more openness and a little more connectedness. And, you know, those moments, I mean, I think they do inspire us, very much inspire a sense of possibility because everything seems possible in the moment that they're occurring. <laughs> Not when they're gone, but in the moment when they're occurring. Everything seems possible. And I think we, you know, also in those moments we are convinced that enlightenment is just around the corner. You know, almost there, wherever there is. In those moments we gladly, gladly welcome discarding our concerns about the confusions in our lives or confusions over our identity or confusion within our relationships because there's no doubt in those experiences of stillness and silence it all seems a little irrelevant you know, it just all seems a little irrelevant and then you know we feel really connected with the path of the great teachers and they say let go it's all there is to it now I might mention of course that it only, they only seem irrelevant in those moments when the experience is present also this approach of great simplicity of simply letting go of course is only one approach now there are times when we have that vision and we very much feel that simplicity within our own journey. There are also times, I think, for many of us, when that vision is replaced by a very different approach. And I might say that in the West, we seem to come to the spiritual life with our own kind of particular uh, way of seeing it. I think for many Westerners, of course, our roots are in a background which in a culture in a background which very much stresses personal growth and very much stresses also improvement and to some extent i think we all carry within us a certain conditioning that really encourages us to reach for personal perfection you know, to be good at things, to be good enough. And part of this emphasis upon personal growth is one, of course, that emphasizes a certain kind of inner healthiness or balance within our personal world. We are, you know, perhaps encouraged or taught of the need to develop a certain balance within our emotional life, within our psychological lives, within our relationships, to, to also cultivate a, relate, a sense of relatedness within the world where we do live with a certain impeccability, um, 
a certain compassion and a certain integrity. This is, of course, much more noticeable in the West than in the East. And sometimes it is also, it's also true, I think, that it is very difficult to sustain a kind of undiluted and single-minded intention towards liberation when our lives are a mess. That's the basic actuality. If your life is a mess, it's hard to be that interested in liberation. You know, if your relationships are breaking up, if your world is in chaos, you know, um, you know, you, you you're working at some crummy job, you hate, you know, you're, you know, you're or you're faced with separations or death or losses in your life, or you know, you just feel like you have no direction. Um, if you feel surrounded by confusion, if you're unhappy, sometimes it's hard to be that inspired about enlightenment. You're mostly interested in unhappiness. And sometimes, I'm not saying that this is irrelevant. This may be totally relevant. And in those moments, I think, you know, when things are not so balanced in our personal world, Enlightenment probably still seems like a good idea, but it's one that seemingly needs to be postponed, or else it might even just seem like it's a good idea for somebody else. It's hard to get excited about liberation when we are faced with the reality of a life that seems to be filled with problems problems in our relationships with people, problems in our relationships with authority, or when we feel very alienated. What is obviously more predominant in this, or more predominant in interest, is a concern about our personal well-being. This is actually what really draws our attention. Enlightenment in this moment often sounds just like theory. What we are more concerned with, more drawn to, is a concern about our personal well-being, about how to be at peace within ourselves, about how to understand the real issues in our lives, how to forgive, how to live with less pain and confusion, how to live with greater ease and happiness in the midst of a life that feels very confused. These concerns, I think, feel immensely and imminently far more fascinating than retiring into some kind of ethereal realm of liberation. Now, it does seem at times that when we do become concerned with issues, difficulties and problems in our lives. I think it seems, and I think sometimes we feel a little confused about this, it seems as if we're willing to accept more limited objectives in our spiritual path. What seem to be more limited objectives. It seems as if we're willing to accept a more limited agenda 
accept objectives that are actually going to make a difference in our lives right now. So our path and then our approach in meditation often changes according to what we're actually interested in and according to what's actually facing us in our own experience. Our motivations and our intentions change. Non-attachment, renunciation, understanding emptiness. You know, we accept that these are valid things to do, but often we become more interested or feel that it's more pressing to understand our own stories, our own inner dynamics, about how to achieve calmness, how to live our lives more skillfully, more wisely, how to live with more peace in our personal world. It's not that necessarily we renounce awakening or renounce enlightenment, but I think we begin to conceive that we are working more towards enlightenment by working on ourselves. I think this link is made that by working on ourselves, we're actually working our way towards enlightenment. By penetrating our stories, our confusions, by understanding our psychological and our emotional problems, we are working towards being more healthy and balanced person, and then working towards enlightenment. Now, I have to you know, say that how frequently this word work is kind of used synonymously with meditation in the West. You know, everybody seems to be working on something. You know, like there's a lot of work to do, you know. And sometimes, you know, people say, well, I'm working on this and then I'm working on that, you know. I get kind of these images, you know, of shovels and pickaxes coming into the meditation room, you know, that we're all, you know, hard hats and things that we're all actually kind of really working here together. And I do feel that it's a word that has a kind of history and association for us, you know, that we are working on something, we're going to complete it, and it's all dependent upon my effort. And I think this is where we have to be very careful with this word. You know, like whether my work is successful or not is somehow my personal responsibility and also my personal failure if my work is not successful. So, you know, we need to be a little bit cautious about how we use this work this word works, but I can also appreciate, and I think it is important to appreciate this whole area of balance and its relationship to awakening. I don't think they are separate. To understand the relationship between balance and awakening, because quite frankly, where there is imbalance within the consciousness, there is dwelling. To me, this is obvious. You know, if you are identified 
if there is imbalance within the consciousness, if you are identified with some kind of self-image, then there is preoccupation. I mean, what do you become preoccupied with in your meditation? You think about it. You know, people don't come complaining about being preoccupied with, with all the compassion they felt today, you know, or all the matter they're having problems with, you know, or, or the spaciousness they need to let go of. This is not kind of an outstanding feature of interviews, I have to say. You know, <laughs> mostly, you know, what is my problem? My problem, you know, my problem is that which I've identified with as being who I am. So there is, there is some, some real need to understand this, the relationship of this, of balance to opening. There is a real relationship. But does balance come by working things out? This is the, the other question we need to explore. Does balance actually come through working things out or through further preoccupation or through dwelling? And I think this is the, the maybe the, the kind of slightly gray area that we have some conviction in that perhaps is useful to explore. When we sit, we spend some time in a retreat. I think what we see is the way, you know, what is immediate in our experience is the way in which our stories and our history and our conditioning appears to have the power to get in the way of clarity, of peace, of stillness. Seeing this, I think we then get this idea of working things out, of improving things, of making things change, of altering parts of ourselves or things that we carry so that it doesn't have the power any longer to get in the way of peace or stillness. Sometimes I think we feel that personal development improvement is actually the way to open the door to a kind of perfect skill in the art of being. That when we work things out, that that's the point, that we will have no more anxiety and no more confusion. That spiritual grace or awakening is going to follow in the footsteps of having reached a more refined state of personal perfection. Now, I think there are moments when we do question this, in our moments when we do question this, especially in retreats, we start to wonder if we're doing it right when one problem follows on the footsteps of another. You know, when you get into this kind of cycle of working on things and actually realize that it's endless. You know, where you do have days, you know, when you, 
you work on anger and you know you you only get maybe you know five minutes to kind of congratulate yourself before it's time to start working on greed you know and, and then you just get a couple of minutes break there and then it's lust or you know and lust is followed by aversion you know and it kind of seems like there's this bottomless pit full of demons you know waiting for their turn to be worked on in uh, <laughs> sort of like a dentist waiting room you know an endless stream of patients and I think sometimes when we get very busy in this you know we do wonder at times you know maybe I've lost sight of what this is all about you know really is this what I want is this how I foresee my future I mean it's fairly miserable prospect you know I mean it seemed better maybe not to be aware you know rather than to be sentenced to years of you know and it's an awful thought isn't it it's a horrible prospect and so sometimes I think you know we do wonder well you know maybe I have lost sight of what it's all about and yet it's hard to stop doing it it's hard to stop doing it because we have such a sense of responsibility about it all you know this is me and if this is who I am then surely it's up to me you know unless I find some really magical guru who's going to cleanse me of all of this then it must be up to me to take care of it you know so back to work we go you know now it is also I think part of the fascination of course with this busyness I mean not to forget that there is the very wholesome intention of discovering balance not not to forget that but to be aware of this other this other aspect that gets added to that wholesome intention of discovering balance this other aspect of personal responsibility and identification now I think in the light of personal responsibility and identification actually it's very hard to stop this cycle of doing because there's some satisfaction that's gained from it there is some satisfaction that's gained from it first of all we can kind of you know make a sort of score sheet for ourselves that we feel better about you know I got rid of this you know I got rid of that you know I left my lust at Gaia house and you know all this kind of sense of what I have done you know we have a sense of some progress that has been made and it may actually really be true that in our lives we experience less anxiety less confusion more sensitivity more understanding and these are things that we can measure we can see them in our lives they make a difference and they give us a sense that we're going somewhere we're going somewhere now this level of reassurance is actually really difficult to find in the other approach to meditation I was speaking about you know you just sit down and let go you know, where you are only interested in enlightenment everything else is kind of irrelevant it's, there's no reassurance there you know no one pats you on the back you're doing great 
you know, there's, there's no sense that insight is, uh, whether insight is deepening or not. You don't even know whether you're just deluded, you know, and maybe it's all a big trick anyway, you know, <laughs> that there's no enlightenment after all. You know, actually there's no reassurance. So it's, it's harder. Let's tell you, it's harder. Now, these, these approaches, these two approaches, one of uh, gradual change and progress and improvement, uh, and also the very valid, very valid approach of seeking for balance and health within all of the aspects of our being. This approach seems very polarized, very opposite <coughs> to the approach of simply focusing upon enlightenment. Sometimes I think we are not sure. Should we relentlessly just kind of bypass ourselves in the quest for awakening and trust that we will take care of the details of our lives later? Or the other approach is, should we put our house in order before we move house? Now, according, of course, to the grand spiritual traditions, this confusion is nothing new. It's always been there. And I think it's very much illustrated by the, the story of Hui Neng, which probably many of you are familiar with. You know, Hui Neng was this... Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, <laughs> you know it. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I have to tell the whole story. It was this Chinese peasant who went, uh, went this peasant who went to a monastery, and because he was poor, he was sent to the kitchen, uh, you know, to do the bit I was telling you about the clean lice and the clean the floors business. And all, after some years, the, the patriarch of the monastery was dying and he said that in order to choose a successor he invited all of the monks none of the nuns I might mention he invited all of the monks to write a poem upon the wall of the monastery to illustrate their understanding so there was this one grand monk who'd been there the longest everybody reckoned he'd already won the contest hands down because he was the senior monk. And he wrote upon the wall this little poem that said, The body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright, and carefully repolish them hour by hour, and let no dust alight. So you can gather which approach this one's in line with. So every, all the other monks thought this was a wonderful piece of wisdom. And then Hui Ning, who couldn't write actually himself, got somebody else to write upon the wall his poem. And he wrote, There is no Bodhi tree, nor is there mirror bright. The Buddha nature shines clear and pure, so where can dust alight? He won, actually. He got the uh, successorship. But I think it still doesn't explain the 
paradox or the confusion that seems to separate these two approaches. I think we also need to look at this polarization in the context of our own experience. Now when we come to meditation, when we come to the spiritual life, what we are actually inspired by is hearing about the possibilities of peace, of depth, of realization. These symbolize what this journey is all about. We respond to them. We seek to realize these words, to understand them within our own experience. They are the words that give meaning to the effort and to the time and to the practice that we put in. There is also no denying the fact that when we sit and meet ourselves, inspired by the possibility of realizing what these words mean, that our actual experience is often one that is filled with endless stories mind states, memories, resistances, and moments of holding. That the things that we seek for often feel to be one step away from us. Our actual experience at times in meditation is to be faced with a flow of activity, inner activity, that seems to have a certain power to capture us or to superimpose itself upon the present moment. It seems to have the power to deny the stillness and the silence and the clarity that we are seeking for. Now, when we, this is inevitable, everybody faces this in their experience. Now, in facing that, we are encouraged, actually, not to be caught in our stories. Not to be caught in our stories. To understand the process involved in those activities, not, that, not to give so much attention to the content. To understand the process of holding and resistance. To understand the process of construction and dwelling, to understand the process involved in creating identities and belief systems and self-images on a moment-to-moment level. And that we are encouraged to see that by understanding these processes, which do not actually belong to you or belong to me, that these processes of identification, when understood, that the very insight into them is what really allows us to let go, to open, to understand. By awakening to what is false, we also awaken to what is true. Sometimes it is hard to come to that simplicity of just seeing the process. It is hard not to take it all personally. This is the big stumbling block in meditation. It is hard not to take it personally. Sometimes we doubt, you know, when you have a lot of content in your mind or when you have a lot of 
descriptions about yourself that seem really ingrained and powerful. Sometimes it's, we doubt that just by seeing the process of clinging that this is going to end suffering, that somehow this is going to untangle the knots of our lives, of our stories. In meditation, in our lives, we experience that content is actually what seems to have more power. We seem to experience that the content of our minds, of our thoughts, is what really has the power to dominate and overwhelm us. I think we need to look at our relationship to content. First of all, to appreciate the awesome capacity of the mind to produce content. I think we also have to see sometimes our ambivalence, the mixed feelings we have about our relationship to content. Sometimes we have a lot of aversion for the contents of our minds. You know, especially when it's the same old thoughts and the same old repetitions. Sometimes it's quite boring. You know, sometimes it's just so uninteresting. We can't understand why it keeps happening. It's uninvited. You know, very rarely do we get out in the morning and say, well, I'm going to dwell all day today. You know, it doesn't, you know, that's not on our agenda. And yet the mind is doing this kind of, you know, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. You know, as if, you know, it has some kind of life of its own. So sometimes we have a lot of aversion for content. It's also true that sometimes we're really fascinated with it, you know. So interesting, you know. This is so interesting, you know. For one thing, you know, it allows us to be really busy. You know, it satisfies. It's it actually really satis satisfies our desire for control, you know, because the director can sit there, you know, through sitting after sitting, you know kind of analyzing and philosophizing and projecting and penetrating and, you know, doing all of these things. And that's, in a way, quite satisfying. On the other hand, also, content seems to be at times so flexible, doesn't it? And in fact, you can keep painting all these different pictures in your mind, you know, these fantasies about the future, you know, I could have a career as a meditator, you know, or, you know, I could, have, I could do this, you know, and what happens if I went here and did that, you know. I mean, the mind is so kind of elastic, you know, it's kind of limitless in its flexibility. Also, we can kind of, in a way, sort of order up pleasure you know, through content. This is difficult to do with actuality. <laughs> you know, but, but with content, you can kind of put in an order for pleasure, you know. You know, and a little fantasy comes out, you know, and it's nice, you know, or a little memory, you know, and it's quite nice. Sometimes, you see, you can kind of put in this order 
for gratification, which of course is not actually part of the world of actuality. But no matter how delighted we are anyway with the content, it does dawn on us that as long as we inhabit a world which is defined by content, we are also inhabiting a very limited and constructed world that has some very noticeable deficiencies. And certainly some of the casualties of living in a content thought-dominated world, some of the casualties of that, of course, are clarity, insight, connectedness, uh, awareness, you know, um, wakefulness. I mean, there are a number of casualties of it. And yet there is this kind of addiction, you know, this kind of stickiness around content, content. Even when it's not pleasant, you know, even when we really feel like we're working on something and going into something, I think there's a kind of addiction. I think somewhere we have within us a belief that if we think about something enough, we're going to get an answer. That we're going to come to a solution. That if we really stay with something long enough, you know, give it enough thought, enough attention that out of our little, you know, our precious mind is going to come some revelation. I think sometimes that we don't always appreciate the limitations of thought and how much the mind in itself can only work within the field of what it knows, of what it already knows. You know, insight, intuition, coming from a different place within us than just what the mind is already familiar with and already knows. This, I think, is the idea. It's hard to let go of the idea that the mind is not actually all-powerful and that actually it can't always find a solution and that it can't always find an answer. What should we say about content? What do we need to appreciate about content? One thing we need to really appreciate about content is its potential endlessness. <laughs> if you gave yourself an order, an invitation to do nothing but think for the next 12 days, you would still not come to the end of thought. <laughs> Truly, you would not, there would still be more thoughts to think. You know, even if you signed up here for a year to do nothing but think, at the end of the year you would still be having more thoughts. Even when our present moment, you know, even when we seem to run out of things to think about, we can always guarantee that our lives and our minds can deliver yet one more thing to obsess about and the preoccupation with content produces more content. I think you've probably absorbed this in your experience. You know, it's like watering a, a kind of, a, a very kind of fertile plant. You know, the more you become preoccupied with a thought, the more thoughts will be produced. It's, it has this kind of expanding process, you know. 
The other thing we can say about content is that our relationship to it is very rarely neutral. If our relationship was neutral, content would end. Content ends when your relationship to it is neutral. If there's aversion to content, it continues. If there's fascination with it, it continues. If we see it as an adversary, an opponent to get rid of, to end, unpleasant, a threat, we will assure its continuation. If we see it as something to take pleasure in, to cling to, to hold, to seek affirmation in, an ally, we will also guarantee its continuity. Now the result of being either resistant to content or holding to it, the result means that we are imprisoned by content. We're actually imprisoned by the contents of our mind. The other result is that we will always be busy because there will always be something to overcome or to succumb to, but there will always be something to do. The other thing that we cannot ignore is the degree to which our self-image our idea of who we are is tied to the nature of the content we are experiencing and our relationship to it. We must see that. You know, people don't sit and with a mind that's just kind of restless and agitated, you know, and, you know, just filled with, with kind of... Uh, anxiety and confusion. People very rarely sit with a mind like that and say, you know, I'm such a terrific meditator. You know, I'm really great at this. Our sense of who we are is conditioned by the content of our experience when there is clinging or resistance. This is important to understand because as long as our sense of who we are is conditioned by content and by clinging or resistance, then it means that our life experience and our meditation experience will always be swinging between the extremes of praise and blame, high and low, happiness and depression, contentment and striving. These dualities and these extremes are actually the byproducts of our fascination with content. Now, does this mean that content is worthless? What should we do with it? You know, I mean, apart from seeking lobotomies, what are the options? You know, there must be some other way of approaching it. It doesn't mean that content is worthless. It doesn't mean that we should try to discard or overcome or suppress the activities of our mind. Appreciating also that, you know, in rare moments, actually the mind that is free from clinging and resistance can be remarkably creative. We need to see, actually, what we can learn. What we can learn are stories, and often the contents of our minds actually 
are our greatest opportunities for learning. This is where we learn about clinging. This is where we learn about self-image. This is where we learn about the possibilities of letting go. This is where we learn about the possibilities of openness. I mean, sometimes people get into these notions, you know, of just transcending the mind. And I must say, I always feel a little bit suspicious about these ideas of transcending the mind or ourselves. I mean, first of all, there's a very real question of where you go. But apart from that, it's very important to understand that it is really possible to have absolutely fantastic meditation experiences of total stillness and silence where the mind, you know, just disappears, you know. It's really possible to have these most marvelous meditation experiences that I'm not trying to discourage you from, but also to understand that you come back from experience. You know, and I know people who have got an incredibly bulging portfolio of absolutely, you know, terrific meditation experiences and lives are a mess. You know, who don't know the first thing about living on the earth with integrity and impeccability and compassion. You know, and this is another extreme to take, you know. Wonderful, get rid of the mind, but make sure you know what it's doing in your absence. You know. Otherwise, you know, you you run the grave risk of damaging the world that you live in. You know, it's, it's actually it's a little bit like going on vacation. You know, it's a little bit like going on holiday. You know, you go on holiday to some wonderful place. You know, and the maid is cleaning up your room and making your bed, and then it's like coming back from vacation and sitting there wondering why the dust in your living room doesn't clean itself. You know, there is a relationship, there needs to be a relationship between awakening and life, and the relationship lies in insight. The relationship does lie in understanding. And understanding is not separate from the contents of our mind. The contents reveal our stories and they also reveal awareness. They also reveal awareness. It is not that we must seek for solutions or that we must seek for answers or that we must try to get rid of. But what is important is to see that this is the possibility of insight. This is the possibility of awakening in this moment, not separate from this moment. Sure, we see preoccupation. We see dwelling. We see the past. We see the future. We see anxiety. We see craving. We see this whole range of possibilities of the human psyche expressed in the contents of our minds. Where else are we going to learn? This is the moment of opening. We need to approach our meditation in a great spirit of lightness, of not to resolve, not to find answers, but that light touch of just seeing, of not being for or against, 
freeing the mind of the burden of good and bad, of high and low, of acceptable and unacceptable. Freeing the mind of this burden, just to see, to see that there is nothing that is separate from awareness and that there is nothing that is unwelcome to awareness. Nothing. There is nothing that is unwelcome to pure seeing. It is only the mind that is for and against that finds the unwelcome in the world. All of our thoughts serve to show us and reveal to us the light of seeing. The light of seeing. This is what our thoughts offer us, an invitation to see, to awaken, to be present. It is true that out of that seeing does arise an understanding and a wisdom that really does untangle knots. And yet that seeing is supported by our own commitment to awakening, to being clear, to discovering balance. Awareness accommodates all things. It is not a state to struggle for. It is not a state to strive for. It is here. It is the nature of consciousness. It is the essence of consciousness. What we actually nurture in our practice is non-dwelling. It's not dwelling anywhere so that the light of awareness can actually shine on all things that arise. There is nothing that is separate from awareness. Sometimes we do need to learn the lesson of allowing things to be, of letting go of the notions of personal responsibility, exaggerated responsibility, without ever letting go of the need for impeccability, because this is the nature of wisdom. But we need to learn the patience of allowing things to be, and seeing how much balance and awakening are actually married, are actually joined to each other in an indivisible way. Now I'd like to read to you from this. The ancient masters, this is I love too. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced over stream, alert as a warrior, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, and clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. He is present and can welcome all things.
May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with impeccability. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.